You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. You are watching The Business of Money here on the Nielsen Network. We've got Lindsay Williams, Strictly Business Podcast, as my intrepid co-host, Stephen Saad, the CEO of Aspen Pharmacare, is in the C-suite with us today. And as always, we're very excited to hear from Anthony Clark, Small Talk Daily Research, who really looks at the small mid-cap stocks on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and looks for and finds value. Before we go any further, I think, Stephen, we need to start with the, the news flow out earlier this week. Aspen's deal to manufacture uh, COVID-19 vaccines in their entirety and then supply to the African continent. This is very, very exciting news. Give us a look. It is. It's it's extremely exciting. I mean, just to have got the opportunity to initially make and contract manufacture product in Africa was fantastic news and it proved I mean, it, it was fine from an Aspen perspective, but from a patient perspective, you know, by the end of the year, we could make up to 150 million doses. And almost all of that's gone to Africa. And in retrospect, you realize how important that production capacity on the continent has proven. Without it, you know, there would be, I, I'm not sure any product would have found its way to Africa, as we've seen with the rest. Uh, I think when I last looked, there were more booster doses already sold than doses sold in Africa. So people are taking a third and fourth dose before others even get a first dose. Um, so and so what this what this transaction does is build on that arrangement where it actually where we now are able to release. So we have our own product, we release our own product and we decide who we sell to. Um, beforehand we would only sell to Johnson and Johnson. They would release the product and sell it. So much better arrangement for for ourselves and for autonomy for uh, for Africa and you know, there's a lot of talk about IP waivers, Bronwyn, and uh, so this is a way of making sure you access IP, but also have a tech transfer so you've got certainty on, on delivery. So a very positive step for Africa, I think. Stephen, can I, can I ask you a question? We, we spoke earlier this week and we had, a, we had a good candid session, albeit only 15 minutes. But when I said it's a win, 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 stakeholders, shareholders, South Africa and the African continent in general. Everyone, everyone was a winner. And the first thing you focused on was patience, which I thought was uh, was actually quite appropriate. But I saw an interview with a chap, uh, the CEO of Pfizer, last night uh, on the on the BBC, and it, it was no, it actually was CNN, I think. And uh, they asked him uh, quite a nasty question. They said, "Do you have any moral issues with making so many billions, Pfizer? This is out of the uh, pandemic." How would you have answered that? You know, the, this has been, this is always, I go to the question of access. It, first of all, it's very, it's, it's, it's very hard for people at fires and everywhere in terms of there's almost, if you, people will happily pay twice as much for a new cell phone, but they, they don't, they begrudge a purchase of, uh, of medicines. My answers on the COVID vaccine is a little different in the previous pandemic. You know, when we had ARVs, for example, Lindsay, uh, they were, say, $1,000 a patient, and then you need that for the rest of your life, and, and people just couldn't afford it, and it's not accessible. What Pfizer have done, if I were answering for Pfizer, which is what you've asked me, they might be charging $20 for their, for their vaccine in, uh, in Europe, which the Pfizer CEO refers to as just a cup of coffee. Um, and it's, it's relatively one. If there might be a boost, you might need two or three. 
And the pricing in Africa is my understanding is somewhere between six and eight dollars. Um, and somehow that, you know, it doesn't seem like a huge cost to bear, but everyone looks at that cost or sell price. In my opinion, it's a small price. Think about when you go for a test. Everyone's rushing for tests now. You make 800 Rand or whatever it is. And he's providing a vaccine at six to seven dollars. So I, I think that's how it operates. And, and if he's making billions out of that, good luck to him. That's, uh, that, that's my view. He's provided accessible. And he, there were so many companies that tried to produce, uh, and I know Albert pretty well because I knew him from the vet. There were so many companies trying to get these vaccines out. And in my opinion, he had the worst. If you gave me a vaccine, that's the one I wouldn't have taken. It was at 70 degrees, uh, minus 70. Um, it, it was hard to move around. The distribution was awful. He developed his own dry ice. He developed everything in his own containers. Let's let's just be fair on him. He he did he didn't uh, you know he he did really well to get his supply chain in order, and he's reaped the benefits and the rewards. And I, I don't think you know six or eight dollars is a lot to pay in Africa. So I want to talk now about Aspinovax, and that of course will be the name of the vaccine made in Africa for Africa. I mean, you know, this couldn't be a better story, despite obviously the COVID-19 reality, but made in Africa for Africa in the medical space where we have seen 99% of the vaccines needing to be imported into the onto the continent. Again, I mean, this branding, this opportunity, Stephen? Uh, Bronwyn, it is so exciting. And you know what I've loved the most about it? is the support we've had out of Africa, um, not just South Africa. I think the rest of Africa have embraced us more than, than you can possibly imagine. I think people are so tired of having a begging bowl out. So when Lindsay asked me the previous question, the question really should have been not whether you make enough profitability. Did you make enough profit or is this insane to make profit? The question would be, how did you distribute your vaccines? Mm -hmm. And this has been a major issue for for uh, for Africa. Absolute, and I'm sorry, I'm going to be probably politically incorrect, but this is how I see how the world was split. The world was split between those who had manufacture and money, developed world, and they got access. The rest of us were, were corralled into COVAX and to get you know to, to uh, less developed and effectively to be supplied out of India. A lot of India, that's what that's what's going to save the day. And then India had its own problems and they never supplied into COVAX and Africa never got. And it's just wrong to have the world corral like that. And when you see these variants, the world is reaping it's just rewards for for keeping for excluding people in here. And so I think the whole of Africa is so happy to say, hey, we've got our own. They've taken so much pride in it. And so do we, of course. I mean, it was everything we wanted. We're building up. All we want to do, Bronwyn, is build our capacities up from the 300 to 1.3 billion. We get to one African, one dose. And the support out of Africa and the pride Africa, and they're now using us as a stick to beat the rest of the world, to say, hey, why did you ignore us? We have this capacity. We have this capability. We're not standing back anymore. Uh, and to just to give the continent a voice uh, and to be a part of it, uh, you know, it's it's a, a 
you work really hard. I can't tell you how exhausting this last year has been with the API goes, you know, Eskom power problems and all the issues we've had on our on our ARV on our COVID buildup. And it's you know, it's on, it's off. The vaccine works, it doesn't work. To actually get to this point, uh, it's it's really rewarding and it really gives it really gives purpose to what you do every day. You you want to work with the purpose in life, you know. It goes often goes beyond it. organizationally and personally, and uh, it, it's working has given purpose. And to get support from Africa is just wonderful. Actually, this must bring bright memories for you. I mean, you're sitting there quietly on the sidelines, and you remember, I think it was you were talking about one of the first roadshows that you covered for Aspen. I mean, listening to the story now, give us your sense. Yeah, I remember probably over 20 years ago, I was working at the Board of Executives with the country's number one healthcare analyst, uh, who uh, Stephen will know well, Marcel Jankelo, she's now at NetCare. And uh, we did our first roadshow to institutions in Cape Town, and the share price from memory was around six rand. And uh, back then, Aspen was a fast-growing, but still, you know, small to medium-cap company. Excitement of this African-based pharmaceutical company. And here we are 20 years later, sitting around our tables online because of COVID, uh, discussing how this company has grown to be this, you know, this 200 billion rand behemoth now actually providing vaccines into Africa to, you know, to, to assist in what is a global pandemic on a very cost-effective basis, right here from this country, from an operating plant in the Eastern Cape. What a great story. Oh, thank you, Anthony. It's, uh, sure, it goes back a few years, but uh, that's great. I mean, sure. Our share price, as I said to you earlier, our share price dropped after that last rush. <laughs> I think it went from six to four, <laughs> six rand to four rand. <laughs> I think from my perspective as, an, as a potential investor, you know, Stephen, what you're doing with Aspen is very commendable. You've got this state-of-the-art facility in the Eastern Cape. I suppose, you know, from a market perspective, we'd, we'd like to know what could be the potential of, of this new division for you and, of course, of the greater Aspen group that you founded. Yeah, I think this is... It's really launched us. We wanted, we didn't expect to get into to, to get into the vaccine space at the speed that we got. We wanted to be in vaccines. That's part of what I built. Uh, and uh, three, four years ago, I had a very tasty interview with Bronwyn on what we were doing in sterile and sterile space. And I said we had a plan, uh, and uh, the plan was to get into vaccines. This has launched us. I'm really hopeful that if the volumes come through, there's a few things I'd really like to do, Anthony. Um, uh, within Aspen, things we'd like to do. I'd like to build up regional, some regional capabilities um, across the continent, that is, uh, to assist with that. But to do that, we would uh, we'd have to uh, uh, to get a, a pipeline. I want to get access to a pipeline of vaccines, which can service the continent as well, because the continent itself wants to be making 40 to 60 percent of their vaccines over the next, you know, over the next couple of decades. So I don't, as unhealthy as it is or what it is now to have vaccine capability only in eight or nine geographies around the world, um, I think we'd, we're happy to service all of Africa and really like to, but I don't think anybody should once again just depend in one area. So I think we need to create some regional capabilities, build some human capital in that area, um, and, and broaden the base that we have of vaccines, and so this, you know, if we if we're successful in this, and we it creates the um, the capital and the profitability to be able to 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 achieve that. Those were areas we'd be investing, we'd be reinvesting quite heavily in. Now, I'm not an I'm not a virus expert, but aside from COVID, what are the other big big uh, areas in Africa where you see growth regarding vaccines, particularly for Aspen? 
Yeah, I think we'd really like to be involved in pediatric vaccines. There's, you know, there's the Gavi initiatives. Um, they've also, the multilateral buyers, the big buyers, UNICEF and CEPI and all, have learned quite a valuable lesson here because they've realized that you do need regional capacities and capabilities, which you can just lose. Uh, you can just lose supply overnight. So I think some of the pediatric vaccines, there's, 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 they relate to diarrhea and pneumonia, pneumococcal vaccines, the, the basic vaccines as well. I think I'd like to try and see what we can do and how we can build it geographically. And then also how we put that into our emerging market platform. Because the one thing we have got is a very strong sales and marketing presence across emerging markets. Um, and uh, the, the vaccines, we've got capabilities. We make vials here. We can make preflux syringes in France. So we would... We would look to sort of, you know, have different delivery forms as well, Anthony, and, and, and be able to become a, hopefully a, a much bigger player in vaccines. What did happen in vaccines, it was controlled by four big multinationals. Um, and I thought that's how it was going to stay. And we would partner with one, one or more of those big multinationals and build up our vaccine business that way. What we learned is none of them, including Pfizer, developed their own vaccine that was developed by BioNTech. And so it's a very fluid market. So there are a lot of small vaccine companies, biotech companies, effectively laboratories. And how do they compete in emerging markets? So it's fine now for, say, Moderna. Even Moderna must have a market cap well over $100 billion. But they, it's fine when you're sending one off to governments. But how do you compete with the flu vaccine if you want to go to Lima, Buenos Aires, Nairobi, Johannesburg? Shanghai, Hanoi, you need you need feet on the ground and people can go toe to toe. Now Aspen's got that capability. So you can come to Aspen and say, hey, I'm a lab with this very clever product. What I need is somebody to pack it for me in a vial and lyophilize it or and and or add it to a pre-full syringe or blow full seal, and then also market it across these geographies. So we provide a very interesting sort of plug and play. Uh, across emerging markets for, for them. Of course, everyone's going to want to do the US and Japan for themselves and maybe Europe. But for the rest, I think we, we provide a solution. Stephen, just one question. I, I, I'm, we're focusing a little bit too much on, um, uh, on, on you, which is, uh, which is understandable. But I, I asked you a question the other day and I said uh, it, it was World AIDS Day when we, when we spoke. And I said to you, do you think there'll be a world COVID day in, in 10 years time? In other words, do you think that the pandemic will continue to reiterate itself? It will continue to mutate and therefore your five-year contract that you've got with uh, the Johnson & Johnson uh, division, will that continue? Will Aspen be at the forefront? Yeah, so I think that I, Maybe I'm an optimist, okay, so I take it from whence it comes, but uh, even this latest variant that we're seeing here in South Africa, you know, if you look at previous epidemics and, and how these uh, pandemics and how they became, uh, how, how they're able to overcome is ultimately you get a very infectious, like this new variant might be really infectious, so you, you get it quick, you get it easily, so it does delta, beta, whatever else comes through but it, you are relatively asymptomatic. So it turns into like a flu, which is what you had. And that is hopefully an end solution for things like COVID is where you find something that's infectious, but doesn't make you, it doesn't make you uh, as ill or hospitalize you. Um, so I think that, 
you're always going to need, and you'll see some of the latest, um, uh, you'll see some of the people, of the latest developers, they're talking about developing a flu and a COVID vaccine as one. I think it's going to mutate. I think it's not going to go as quickly as we all hope, as we see now. But I think it is going to be ultimately going to become less severe in time. Uh, Thank you. Stephen, thank you so much. Just great having you give us the, the insights around the, the current situation, the fourth wave of COVID-19, and of course, the, the key role that Aspen Pharmacare is playing in, in really working uh, to, I suppose, I don't want to be too dramatic, but save the African continent and going back to Made in Africa for Africa. Thank you very much, Stephen Saad is the CEO of Aspen Pharmacare joining us here on the Nielsen Network. Thank you, sir. I appreciate being with all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to look at some of the expectations for the small to mid-cap market. Uh, you haven't touched on long for life yet, have you, in terms of the offer that Brian Joffe received from Old Mutual Private Equity. Uh, it was this morning, Anthony. Yeah, it was. It broke this morning. It's not, uh, it's not old news. Um, the company has been under cautionary for quite some time regarding an approach. Uh, the share price at the beginning of this year was about three rand. We're now trading at about five rand 23. So it's had a nice run on the back of, the, of, of potential for re-ratings and buyouts. But let's not forget that this company listed about five years ago uh, at about five rand. And whilst the illustrious Mr. Joffe has a fantastic track record at Bidvest, uh, his, uh, his latest incarnation of Long for Life initially had a flurry of deals buying Sportsman's Warehouse, uh, Sorbet, uh, some soft drinks brands. But for the last few years, he simply hasn't done any deals. And the only deals he's done is buying back his shares at a significant discount to the listing price because he was hoarding cash. So the fact that an offer this morning has come at, uh, at five rand 80, which is a 20% discount to the stated net asset value, again, is endemic that the, the market is, 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 is just, you know, they're, they're looking for some form of value accretion. And if the underlying management can't, can't do it, um, it'll get bought out. So will the offer be accepted? I don't think so. I think right now in the market, people are looking at seven grand twenty and five grand eighty, saying yes, it's a premium to the, to the ruling share price. But if it were to carry on, perhaps if you were to liquidate the company, you'd get back more. So uh, I think that'll be the trend of next year. Again, we've seen a number of delistings and buyouts this year, and long for life is the latest of what I will see will be a continuation of this trend uh, into 2022. And is that because of the private equity has, has come to the fore? People don't want to be listed anymore. In other words the smaller mid-caps that you follow, they find it onerous to be on, on stock exchanges. And in fact, I'll incorporate the next question, and Bronwyn, you want to bring this up as well. The Cape Town Stock Exchange is coming into uh, an environment where there's delistings on the JSC, but they're trying to look for uh, for listings, and people are... It, it, it's a trickle, Bronwyn, but it, it's happening, isn't it? It is happening. And actually, before you answer, I mean, TWK Agri being the, the first uh, listing on the Cape Town Stock Exchange, and we see now they've also got the secondary listing on A2X. Give us a sense of the opportunity, one, on a stock like TWK, and secondly, what the Cape Town Stock Exchange is likely to do for the small and mid-cap sector, which they are specifically targeting. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a wrap between your two questions. On the delisting scenario, I think you're right, Lindsay. I think that, that the, the underlying market for small to mid-caps has changed. 20 years ago, 
um, you know, institutions had large funds investing in small to mid caps. They're now focusing on offshore and, and bigger stocks. And so the small to private caps, the small to medium cap sector has now diminished in terms of investing universe. It's mainly driven by boutiques, hedge funds and the private client investor. And, they, and there simply isn't enough capital to sustain these listings. And as such, the, the, the ratings have fallen materially. You know, I, was, I gave an interview last week where beginning of last year, uh, during the height of COVID, you could have bought fantastic companies with 30 or 50 year track records on price earnings ratios of twos and threes. Uh, we've now gone back to maybe six to sevens, but they're still cheap on a historic basis. So if you're a family owned business running a, a great little company with you know, cash in the bank and churning out good profits, and the market isn't rewarding you for this, uh, for this performance, you're gonna consider a buyout offer from private equity, or maybe delist yourself and, and keep the money in house. Regarding the Cape Town Stock Exchange, which was the old 4AX rebranding itself, you're correct, Bronwyn, we are looking to, to capitalize on potential uh, for companies looking to list who want a much lighter uh, listing environment, uh, a, a much more focused um, space where small to mid caps are actually cherished and not lost in the maelstrom of being on an exchange, which has NASPERS and BAT and, you know, and, and the, large, the large multinationals where the Cape Town Stock Exchange could focus and actually develop you know, a small to mid cap universe. And I think you're right, the first listing was TWK, which moved from the ZARX, it's a 1.5 billion rand um, agricultural business operating predominantly in, in, in Pumalanga and, uh, and the Eastern Cape. And Natal does fantastically well, I saw them yesterday. And I think we'll see many more listings in the, uh, in the months to come. They are targeting at least one a month. And I know at least six they've got in the pipeline for the early part of 2022. And if that were to occur, you know, there's space for everybody, but JSE can get the large listings like the Coca-Cola bottler or the, of a new emergent African bank. But there needs to be a platform for small to mid-cap enterprise to raise sufficient capital to actually grow in a space where they are cherished and valued. And I think the Cape Town Stock Exchange could potentially be that, albeit currently of, of a small base, but I think it will grow. Well, that's interesting, Bronwyn, because it, it's almost as though the Cape Town Stock Exchange, with, with, with whom you have a, a, a good relationship, um, is almost like an incubator and a nursery for, for companies. And maybe they sort of groom them. And then the private equity firms, and we've heard about the private equity deal between or potential between Mr. Joffe's company and uh, or mutual private equity. Maybe that's, that's what they're doing. And private equity will look at these new listings and say, OK, well, off the exchange you go and we'll take you over. Maybe that's, that's the trend, Bronwyn. Well, it may well be, but I think Anthony's been a place to just uh, pick up on, on that sentiment and drive home some of your thoughts there. Yeah, I, I, listen, I've been covering the small to mid cap sector for 25 years. You know, we've seen listings when I first entered the market in 1996 fall from around 800, we're now to about 330. Yes, for us, you know, periodic uh, new listings, but they're, they're very few and far between. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be the last dinosaur, you know, roaming with JSE covering small to mid caps. Hopefully there'll be a vibrant space. And again, we've been through many, many cycles where we have listings, delistings, we have unbundlings, we have spin-offs, and there's an evolution to the marketplace. And I think what we're going to be seeing is whilst there's a, a big you know, uh, delisting boom currently on the, on the go, let's not forget that Breit announced last week that they are relisting Premier Foods. And perhaps out of private equity in due course, they, they may not sell off certain assets, they may spin them off to be small separate listings on an exchange like a JSE 
or the Cape Town Stock Exchange. So there are permutations at play. And for example, I've been in discussions with many of the mid-cap stocks, which trade at significant discounts to their net asset value, where they have very nice, juicy assets inside their portfolio, which they are un either unable to sell or they're too small to sell, but they could be ripe little listings on a small exchange. So I think you might see a few more unbundlings and dealers and sort of, you know, sort of spin-offs in the next 12 months to augment the listing space, which I think is, a, is the natural evolution of the market. Well, I think we can't let you go without getting some hot stocks in the small and mid-caps. And I know that you have got a couple we've been watching. Obviously, we spoke to Renogen last week um, and we spoke to Stefano Morani. I see he's off now in the US um, in terms of his plants, et cetera, et cetera. You've also spoken about York Timbers previously. Is there, uh, is this where you're going to go in terms of hot stocks or do you have something else for us? I, I wrote uh, about a week or two ago, there could be six stocks, I think next year, that could have some, uh, some play regarding either buyouts, delistings or private equity transactions. And I'll just reel them off. One was York Timbers. There's also uh, Mustek, the IT and hardware company, which sits on a net asset value of 20 Rand, a share price of 13, been buying back shares and is still on a price earnings ratio of three. We've got Santova, the supply chain logistics company, again, on a discounted net asset value, uh, rising profits and a, a rand hedge uh, a growth story, still in a P of five or six. Um, we've got Bona Metcalf in specialized packaging, family owned, where there's a transition currently from a family owned structure to more of a corporate structure. Could that engender a potential buyout with a, with a stock which is trading only on a, on a two to three times PE for its core operating plastics business? The answer is yes. Um, you've mentioned Renogen. Uh, you're correct. Uh, Steph Marani, the CEO, is currently in Texas. Um, you know, he's there for a Helium conference and perhaps to potentially talk to some very interesting partners who may wish to offtake some of his Helium going forward. I shan't steal any of his thunder, but I think uh, when Steph comes back, he is certainly a gentleman to have on your show again. He could have some very interesting news about uh, the development of Renogen going forward. And the share price has been under whip. The last two weeks coming off a high of 40 rand we're now back to 30. you know as a, as a natural pullback to what has been a stellar run uh, in the company but perhaps there's, there's more legs there but i think in the small to mid cap space be under no illusion there are many many stocks out there trading on p's of threes fours and fives which have really good prospects which the market is simply ignoring a combination of low liquidity no coverage maybe apart from myself and the potential of many stalking horses and as i said earlier you know brian joffe one of consummate deal makers, you know, probably the last 20 years in this country, even he couldn't make long for life succeed due to a combination of, uh, of, of private equity nibbling at, uh, his, at his heels, paying more for, for great businesses. So perhaps the trend going forward is private equities investing in a basket of small to mid caps and listing a private equity fund investing in small to mid cap stocks. Now, there's an idea going forward, which I think would enable the private investor to get a foot in the door of being alongside private equity and, and then sharing in the upside, but not seeing these companies vanish completely. So if anyone out there is listening, I think there's a great space in the JSE or the Cape Town Stock Exchange for a large fund investing in small to mid caps, which we as the, you know, the private uh, investor could participate in alongside private equity. That's interesting because you answered my question. So the, the trend uh, over the next year and couple of years is for companies that don't have any liquidity on the JSC, uh, people ignore them and therefore the costs are, are so high uh, to stay listed 
are going to be taken out with their ridiculously low PE ratios in an economy that hopefully will start to recover in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think that trend will continue, sadly. I think from memory we saw 16 uh, in 2020. I think this year in total there's been about 19. So the trend is, is steadily there. And, I, you know, I write about these consistently and it, 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 it blows my mind where you see companies trading on 50 or 60% discounts to net asset values, where they have a strong underlying operating performance, family owned over a long history of listing, and the, the market simply ignores them. And in many cases, they, they're hiding in plain sight. It's, it's like going into the bush, and you know the elephant is there. You know it's, it's, you know it's there, but it's hiding behind a big tree. Uh, there we go. We really want to walk straight in. Well, we don't want to walk straight into that elephant, but we certainly want to know that it's there. Anthony Clark, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, from Small Talk Daily Research, Lindsay Williams, always a pleasure having you as my co-host here on mm -hmm. The Business of Money. We'll have our final show for the year next week on Friday. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.